Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Well, look at the time. I'll try to keep this brief. After 28 years of Peacock logos on much of what I own, it is my choice now to jump without a net into the great unknown. I'll show myself out until we meet again. That is our broadcast for this Thursday night. Thank you for being here with us. And for all my colleagues at the networks of NBC News, good night. Noted fabulist Brian Williams signing off from MSNBC. Of course, if you remember his trajectory at all, he got tossed off of NBC Nightly News because he made all sorts of crap up. Uh, He seems to be a fabulist. He's the sort of person who... And I don't know if people do this consciously or or not, uh, but just, just like Joe Biden, he invents details to make stories better and more exciting. Rounds coming into the airframe. For instance, that's right. Bodies floating by the hotel uh, after, uh, I think it was Katrina, the stuff that never happened. Um, and it's very strange that you would risk your career just to dress up a story, um, which, again, makes me wonder if it isn't some sort of weird compulsion that some people have <clears throat> anyway corn pop was a bad dude but um I shared the story with you speaking of burnout and, and quitting jobs yesterday about uh, all the school districts around the country red states blue states uh, you name it that all of a sudden are canceling friday school saying we're going remote on fridays and parents are like wait what i gotta work or canceling the entire week of thanksgiving and, you know, those examples were from Detroit. Um, then the Seattle Public Schools unexpectedly closed the day after Veterans Day. Brevard Public Schools in Florida used all the leftover hurricane days to close school for the entire week of Thanksgiving. That's right, kids. They have hurricane days in Florida. Uh, I grew up with snow days. They got that. In Utah, the reddest of states, the Canyon School District, I don't know that part of Utah, but announced that all of its schools would go remote one Friday a month from November until March, equivalent to more than a week of school. And they uh, they talk about the incredible challenge logistically with parents, plus just the heartbreak of, I think we all know this, there was a big study that just came out of the UN, UNICEF, and whatever else, looking at uh, remote learning, and it was the... Epic disaster, you thought it was, in 188 different countries on Earth. I mean, just a a, a practically soul-crushing, disappointing crime against the children. Part of which was perpetrated based on reasonable caution about the Chinese bat fever. Then a great deal of which was perpetrated over overreaction, paranoia, and teachers' unions' demands. So... In that context, uh, I think I commented after, I must have because people responded to it, I think I commented after the story saying that this does smack a little bit of another teacher's union uh, maneuver. In fact, uh, they they quote in this article from, I think, in New York Times, uh, battles in the classroom over mask mandates and critical race theory have also taken a toll said Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, the country's second biggest teachers union, and one of the worst people in the world. What you hear from teachers is that it's been too much, she said, and they're trying the best they can. Well, she's a congenital liar and evil and screwed the children good and hard to get more for her union. Not for her members, y'all, you teachers who we know and love, but for the union, more power, more money. Okay, so I came out of it in a bit of a cynical mood. 
Got some notes from uh, from folks uh, we know and love, teachers, um, who wrote uh, persuasively and sincerely, and I appreciate that indeed. Here's uh, Al Anonymous, uh, public school teacher. Been listening since he was in middle school almost 20 years ago. Good Lord, when did I get old? Anyway, uh, the teacher burnout you mentioned yesterday is because the pandemic hit the system in several different ways at once. First, many older teachers quit when forced to go online, creating a huge need for teachers. Then the overall labor shortage created huge shortfalls in substitute teachers who left for the same reasons everyone else left, lower paying jobs. This means the rest of the staff, essentially working overtime every day, both teaching our own classes as well as covering others on a daily basis. I I will tell you I have heard that um, from from sea to shining sea. Uh, I I believe that to be absolutely true. He goes on to write, On top of that, the kids are behind academically, socially, and emotionally because they've been out of the classroom for almost two years, which causes a huge variety of immaturity and behavior problems. Not the kid's fault, but still another strain. These days off might be cynical laziness from the unions, but I honest, can honestly say most teachers I know honestly deeply care about the kids but are just over their heads right now. Hope my kids can also listen to you in 10 years when they're in middle school. <clears throat> Although, for your sake, maybe that's not the best. I'm actually, we're not that old. I mean, we're in our 50s, so it could happen. I don't know. Uh, thanks for the show. Hope Baxter and Jack feel better from their surgery soon. <laughs> thanks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jack is back in the hospital. Bit of an infection following his surgery. Uh, we were just chatting with him earlier. Uh, we certainly hope he's okay if you're just tuning in. <clears throat> uh, another note from another teacher. Uh, first off, I hope everyone and their dog is recovering well. That's kind of a funny turn of a phrase there, Alan. I appreciate it. Uh, to the point, closing schools and the reasons we may be seeing this happen. I teach in blankety-blank. I can't tell you how much our work has increased since COVID. We've had to have all of our classroom lessons prepared, as always, not to mention the addition of maintaining a classroom online as well, Google Classroom here. So we're working more, haven't received a cost-of-living increase in years, pushing a decade. So in essence, we're doing it all for less. And to top it off, the state has forced schools to implement, quote-unquote, restorative discipline. We've talked about this a lot. If you're not familiar with it, for goodness sakes, sakes, listen to this and understand the scourge that is either in your schools or coming to your schools. What this really means, he writes, is that we can't suspend students for bad behavior or defiance. I think it's a hey. Please stop using gendered language. Yeah, it is a he. Um, So back to the restorative uh, discipline. We can't suspend students for bad behavior or defiance. On my campus alone, we've had a male student push an assistant principal out of the way as he fled the office, still on campus, not charged for battery. We had an adult student kick a freshman in the head. The adult student is a senior, got up on a picnic-type table, then soccer kicked the freshman in the head. No charges pressed. Adult is still on campus. We had a male student square off on a female teacher while his friends blocked the doorway so no one in the class could get out. Fortunately, she was able to talk him down and no one was injured. He's still on campus, but at least he was suspended for five days. No criminal charges, of course. On top of all this, we've had kids get up and walk out of class anytime they want because they know there's nothing we can do about it. They roam the campus, disrupt other classes, and worst case scenario, they may get a detention. You hear all types of foul language as you walk campus. If you call the kids out on their language, you're likely to get told to F off or something of the sort. They don't care. 
Again, because they know there is nothing we can do about it. It's crazy. So much so that I, too, am looking for another job. I went into teaching to help educate youth, but the apathy I see now in so many students, the blame we get from the parents for their kids' failing grades when the kid hasn't turned in most of their assigned work, and the lack of support from administration. Let's be honest, teachers don't get any support from the community these days either. I'm just over it. Never thought I'd get rich doing this, and I didn't care, but it has reached a point now that I can honestly tell you I just don't get paid enough to put up with a BS that comes my way from kids, their parents, or the general public who seems to think we're all a bunch of lefty whack jobs. I'm not. We're not as a whole up here. I know where you teach, Al, and, and I know that to be true. Uh, do they exist? Sure, just like in any profession, but we've all been painted as evil and lazy by the media, and it's one of those things that really many of us are over. So, yeah, you see a lot of teachers leaving for other careers or retiring early and taking other jobs. We can't fill vacancies with substitutes because they make even less and won't take the position due to the high level of poor behavior. It is out of control. Peace, gents. Love the show. Be listening for another 25 years, God willing. Thank you, my friend. Um, that scores with everything I've heard from public school teachers uh, for the last couple of years. There was not a note of falsity in there. The only gripe I had, well, that's that's not a gripe, just a, a clarification, is that I also know plenty of teachers in very blue parts of the world. That gent in particular is uh, in a red county. Um, and, and in the blue counties of America, God forbid you should admit to any moderate, I always said conservative, but really you can't even admit to any moderate leanings in the teacher's lounge or you will just be hounded, hounded out by the woke crowd, the critical race theory crowd, the equity and uh, social justice crowd that are now trying to teach every single class um, as a uh, social justice warrior class. And math is a tangential part of it. Social study or science is tangentially part of what they're cl- teaching, but mostly they're they're teaching the uh, the woke stuff, the the uh, Ibram X Kendi just racist garbage. I think we are at the stage, you know, where people see the smoke coming out of the building and they're yelling, but the fire department isn't quite here yet when it comes to our nation's public schools. I think we are very near the point where more and more folks are waking up um, to the crisis, whether they overheard something being taught to their kids that outraged them on, you know, Zoom school. Or they have teacher friends talking to them. They become aware of the restorative justice thing. Um, it's crazy. They got Antifa teachers, you know, who we've talked about. And never forget, you remember the Parkland uh, school shooter who who killed so many poor innocent kids. He had offended over and over again, but the Obama administration had tied federal education dollars to adopting these principles of so-called restorative justice the idea being we're looking at the numbers and it looks like kids of color are suspended more than white kids therefore it's de facto racist and we have to do something about it so they institute these policies where you're not supposed to suspend anybody or really punish them in a significant way absolutely do not call the cops do not call the cops no matter what somebody does in school and this shooter in florida tried over and over and over again to make clear what kind of kid he was, how troubled he was, his penchant for violence, the rest of it. But the teachers and the local law enforcement who were in on the gig, uh, they covered. They covered for him. They covered over and over and over again until he finally broke and he came back and he murdered a bunch of people. Um, and I'm not saying that's going to happen in a lot of schools around the country. God forbid. What a horrible thing to even think about. But um, 
you know, I know you're busy, and I know it's a pain in the ass, and I know your public school experience was probably pretty decent growing up, but, man, you really need to figure out what's going on in your schools because it has gone sideways. Yikes. Matt Taibbi wrote a great piece recently called Will Twitter Become an Ocean of Suck? And it's about big tech, what they've done and why they've done it, and it's a unique and insightful take. We'll bring that to you this hour. Hang around. Just horse paste and hydroxychloroquine, vitamin C and vitamin D, then the zinc and quercetin. I won't wear a useless mask. I don't need to stay at home, and my kids should go to school. We don't need to be alone. I just want my freedom now. The Constitution will show us how. Make my dreams come true, baby, an emergency. Let's have and, a happy holiday, everybody. End the emergency, she says. That's at the San Diego Board of Supervisors meeting. Bridget, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Bridget, the song stylings of Bridget. Uh, her point is a good one, though. We are into the uh, endemic phase of COVID, not the pandemic phase. It's going to be with us the rest of our lives. It will be mostly harmless. It will kill some people because they are older, have particular uh, weaknesses uh, in the face of that disease. But uh, the idea that we ought to be doing uh, really anything about it at this point is just crazy. I mean, if you, uh, you know, I'm getting my booster shot. Actually, I just signed up for it. Um, you do what you want to do. You th- do what you think is right. But uh, boy, to be shutting down learning and, and business and and travel and the rest of it at this point is just kooky. Not to mention, you know, something as idiotic as the idea of a national uh, vaccine mandate that Biden's trying to get going and a couple of countries have instituted. But I don't want to do serious stuff. Too much serious stuff. Uh, a little bit later on, uh, will Twitter become, what do you call it, an ocean of suck? Matt Taibbi's brilliant piece. Thanks, also, Twitter! Boy, lefties despise people who disagree with them. Republicans much, much, much less. Um, if the left seems kind of hateful to you, uh, well, yeah, there's a poll that says you're right. And this is from Axios, by the way. It's not from the Daily Caller, what have you. Um, so we'll get to that. But I wanted to do a couple of lighter hearted things, including the tune we just heard. Uh, Michael hit us with this is there was a fallout, I guess, over Boris Johnson at a Christmas party. Did it have to do with like not masking and that sort of thing? I'm, I'm not actually familiar with the story. I just know any time uh, they're yelling at each other in Parliament, it's a good time. So uh, clip 12, Michael. Boris Johnson is facing fierce criticism this morning. A leaked video shows senior Downing Street staff joking about a Christmas party thrown by the British Prime Minister during last year's Tier 3 COVID lockdown. This video shows aides rehearsing for a briefing four days after the alleged party. What's the answer? I don't know. I didn't want to party. There's cheese and wine. Okay. <laughs> There's cheese and wine, all right. No. It was a business meeting. <laughs> In Parliament, the Prime Minister addressed the scandal. I was also furious to see that clip. I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party, 
and that and that no COVID rules were broken. And that is what I have been repeatedly assured. Oh, tally ho, Beatles, not stones. I love that. I wish there was more to that in our Congress. Uh, so let's see. What else did I want to do? Where is it? Ah, yes. Uh, I am terrible at this. I can't unless I'm bombed how to sleep on an airplane, Michael, number seven. You're either going to have your cabin and have the lights on or off. So what I would suggest is bring an eye mask, um, noise-canceling headphones, bring some earplugs, and don't forget to wear comfy clothes. No one's looking at you, and they don't care. Second, we have all been there where we are absolutely freezing or really, really hot. So if you are one of those things, just kindly ask a flight attendant for a blanket or to turn up the heat or turn it down. Lastly, if you have kids and they are old enough, what I would suggest is give them a little sliver of those organic melatonin gummy bears and no tablets or screens just to help them get to sleep. And so they sleep comfortable on the plane. Some people can sleep on on transportation. Uh, I can't. It's absolutely impossible. I've slept. You know, I think I probably drifted off a handful of times, like for a few seconds. The only time I ever slept on an airplane was on the way to South Africa when I had a couple of glasses of wine and a couple of muscle relaxants. But I'm not sure. Taking a nap. I'm not sure that's sleep, technically uh, speaking. Well, I wasn't awake, right? Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, coming up, yeah, the uh, the hate that lefties feel toward conservatives, uh, which is so interesting given what a huge percentage of Americans are moderate conservative. Uh, wow, the left has gone nuts. Uh, so we'll hit that for you. The, what's going seriously wrong with Twitter and will probably get worse. More on the bail reform thing. Man, is that nuts. You can email us mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Hey, I wanted to say thanks to all the dog lovers who've written such lovely notes about uh, my dog, my buddy, my doggy buddy Baxter being sick and 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 everything. And so I, I want you to know I read them and and I appreciate it. You, you folks are really pretty cool, uh, except those of you who are not. You're totally uncool, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, I, I I wrote uh, as I said in the Twitter thread. I started a new Twitter account, Baxter's friend Joe. I think I call it. Um. Just, I said he's a really cool dude, and somebody needs to write his life story, so I did. Um, so it's it's about me and my dog. Um, it's it's very s- silly and sentimental and, and simple and stuff like that, but it's at armstrongandgetty.com. I think a link is, anyway, to the Twitter thread. Speaking of Twitter, uh, Matt Taibbi is such an interesting guy. Don't always agree with him, but, oh, my gosh, I always am better for taking in his opinion. Uh, he's a writer, investigative journalist, classical liberal, uh, lefty for years and years and years. Hated Trump, by the way. Um, uh, uh, but he's writing, in this case, about Twitter. The title is, Will Twitter Become an Ocean of Suck? The Resignation of Jack Dorsey is the latest plot point in the story of the Internet's transformation from democratizing tool to instrument of elite control. The thing I love about Matt is he's like a great umpire, a great referee. He, he calls the game straight, even if he's not fond of a player. Okay. So he mentions that Jack Dorsey, the extendo bearded CEO, which I thought was a funny line, is an interesting guy. He just resigned if he didn't follow that uh, as CEO of Twitter. 
and a, a tech guy uh, took over who said he's going to worry a lot less about free speech. Oh, boy. But one of the things Taibbi said was that uh, uh, Dorsey really seemed like a guy who was sincerely in- interested in getting it right, in, in running Twitter in a way that was morally and constitutionally, not constitutionally, but, you know, the principle of free exchange of ideas. He, he actually tried to get it right. Quoting Matt Taibbi, now, Twitter under Dorsey suffered from working too well. And, and Trump fans, by the way, I mentioned that he doesn't like Trump. There's a whole lot of Trump in this, and you're going you're gonna to like what you hear. Um, uh, so Twitter worked too well. Specifically, society responded to Donald Trump's tweet-driven 2016 presidential campaign as if it revealed a defect in the platform that needed fixing, when actually Trump's election was proof that Twitter was working much as intended. Our political establishment just wasn't looking for that sort of functionality. The original concept of Twitter was egalitarian, flattening, and iconoclastic, quote, to give everyone the power to create and share ideas instantly without barriers. That mantra fit with then-CEO Dick Costolo's claim in 2010 that we're the free speech wing of the free speech party. Now, prior to 2016, elite mouthpieces bragged about acting as gatekeepers to political power. Someone like uh, then-ABC writer Mark Halperin, who I used to be a fan of until I became aware of how obnoxious he is, but um, Mark Halperin could write boastful pieces about how, quote, a gang of 500 in Washington really decided the presidency. These were, quote, campaign consultants, strategists, pollsters, pundits, and journalists who make up the modern-day political establishment, as the New Yorker put it. When political debates were held, a handful of analysts told you who won. We, reporters, told you who was electable and who wasn't. And people mostly listened, even if, quote, electability was a crock that mostly measured levels of corporate donor approval. Then came 2016. Trump didn't get the big Republican donor money. It went to Jeb Bush. He didn't get the support of his party's bureaucracy, which at various times pulled out stops to try to derail his candidacy. And even conservative media locked arms against him early in the race. The National Review published an unprecedented Conservatives Against Trump mega piece featuring a slew of famed mouthpieces who aimed to forestall the crisis for conservatism Trump's presence threatened. Trump, throughout his political career, benefited from free corporate media coverage. And by the time of the first nomination, he had universally negative editorial treatment in mainstream media and even serious detractors on stations like Fox. And by the way, there are no good guys or bad guys in, in that conversation as far as I'm concerned. Parties ought to argue about who the nominee is. And Trump was wildly unconventional. Still is. Uh, I know some of you love Trump no matter what. I know some of you hate Trump no matter what. A lot of us are kind of in the middle. Uh, but anyway, going on. <clears throat> uh, once all of that would have been fatal to a politician... Why, which is why Nate Cohn could write with confidence in the New York Times that Trump had, quote, just about no chance, close quote, to win the Republican nomination in 2016. Because, he said, without embarrassment, it is the party elites who traditionally decide nomination contests. Such commentators didn't figure on the power of the Internet and especially Twitter. Now let's get to Twitter and why there's so much pressure for Twitter and Facebook and the rest of them to censor and where that pressure is coming from 
Trump didn't need the news media to amplify his message. He was expressing himself in a way that defied contextualization on a Twitter account that essentially became the country's most followed media network. Then he goes into the the, the rapidly increasing numbers of followers and retweets, uh, which is political no, Politico noted, his power of dissemination increased by a factor of 28 in a single year. Twitter's unique ability to exponentially increase the messaging force of a single individual had never been dealt with by institutional America before. One of the first things uh, Taibbi says I wrote about Trump was his unique knack for the platform. Quote, Trump will someday be in the Twitter Hall of Fame. His fortune cookie mind, restless, confrontational, completely lacking the shame and fact filter, monosyllabic, and rarely asleep when it should be, is perfectly engineered for the medium. Whether he was being dumb or smart, petty or cutting, incoherent or inscrutable, Trump had ways of expressing himself that automatically gave his tweets superior reach to news stories about his tweets that put him permanently ahead of the news cycle. I think we all remember that, and he gives a couple of examples. With this power, a politician was now able to communicate directly with voters, and even the collective displeasure of the entire self-described political establishment could not stuff that genie back in the bottle. Moreover, Twitter itself now decided things like who won debates. Pundits were often reduced to reporting the platform's mood in place of the previous practice of telling populations how to feel. By the way, as an aside, for the longest time, I would turn off the TV immediately after I watched debates. I did not want my uh, my analysis uh, to be flavored or, 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 you know, spiced or even poisoned. By the talking heads. I just, I'd rather tell you what I think. After a while, I started to, I would forge that in my head, and then I would listen to what they're saying just so I could make fun of them. So now, you know, kind of both. But anyway, I love that. So now all the people who told us who won the debates were now reduced to saying, Twitter says Trump won the the debate. So what's going to happen when you challenge the powerful and influential like that? Well, People will focus on the fact that it was bad, bad Donald Trump who got elected that year, but that was really incidental. The real problem Trump represented for elite America had less to do with his political beliefs than the unapproved manner of his rise. Twitter, seen as a co-conspirator in this evil, became a target target of establishment reprisal after Trump's win. So what happened next? Great description of it. After a quick word from our friends at CarShield, America's number one auto protection company, protecting over one million drivers. you got to click around to see if you're eligible and all their different plans. They go month by month. So, you know, if you don't like it, you dump it. But anyway, taking care of unexpected and expensive repairs with CarShield's administrators is easy. Not only do they make the expensive payments because you're protected, but they handle the paperwork so you don't have to. CarShield could save you thousands, literally. Uh, and you don't have to worry about costly winter repairs in, in the way you used to. Plans through CarShield even provide coast-to-coast roadside assistance, rental coverage, and trip reimbursement, all at no additional charge. So whether your car has 5,000 miles or 150,000 miles, maybe you're just about to go out of warranty. Woo, perfect timing. Check out CarShield. CarShield, best defense against costly repairs. Visit carshield.com slash armstrong to save 10%. That's carshield.com slash armstrong. A deductible may apply. Carshield.com slash Armstrong. Michael, this is not a transition, but play a little transition music so I can take a sip of ice water. Is this Christmas music? 
No, it's it? Tiki Lounge. Oh, bing, yeah, yeah. Bing, bong, bong, bing, bong, bing, bing, bong, 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 Fair enough. That's good policy. Anyway, so uh, Trump has won the election, uh, partly because of mastery of Twitter, and the intelligentsia, the power brokers, are aghast and horrified by this. Uh, not not necessarily because of Trump himself, although that was a factor, honestly, um, but because their power had been usurped. So Taibi goes on to write, It's no coincidence that the once pleasant, or at least interesting, experience of Twitter became a troll-infested, anxiety-ridden hell after 2016, thanks to everything from a surge in bots to the explosion of outrage campaigns, which made saying anything remotely controversial a terrifying and miserable prospect for anyone with a job. After 2016, campaign journalists who lost influence to decide presidential races took revenge by enforcing conformity of message within their own ranks on Twitter. A platform designed to enhance discussion now became more of a social policing mechanism. The main change involved moderation. The one-time gateway to unrestrained speech came under constant assault from politicians on both sides of the aisle and, and media, Conservatives accused Dorsey of liberal bias, which I think was true, while Democrats pushed the firm to enact ever stricter controls on speech, first to guard against Russian disinformation, then later against disinformation generally, then finally just against Trump. The company at first tried to enact compromise procedures instead of full-on speech policing, like warning labels and limits of retweets, but by 2020, Twitter couldn't help but become an increasingly regulated environment. It crossed a major censorship Rubicon when it limited access to the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop last fall. Even before that moment, some of us in the journalism business knew Dorsey was the atypical executive who would reach out to ask for input. He was really trying to do the right thing. Uh, but after the Post story, Dorsey himself opened up about how conflicted he was, apologizing for the laptop fiasco and blaming poor communication for the paradigm-shifting suppression of relevant news stories during an election campaign. And then he gives some uh, some examples of that. Um, short story long, though. In the end, Twitter's explosive growth has forced it to embrace something like the opposite of its original mission. It's not an accident that the site now seems significantly overrepresented by upscale, monoculture-worshipping pseudo-intellectuals. Seemingly, every working journalist has an account, and certainly every censoriously woke one does. Like the Internet generally, instead of a machine for speech without barriers, Twitter is becoming precisely a mechanism for tightened elite control over expression, a thought political least platitude sanctuary uh, dorsey tweeted sunday night that he loves twitter it's fair today to wonder if he loves where it's headed uh that's good stuff that is good stuff those in power hate when things get out of their control and you know some of it i didn't love but that's the thing about free speech and free enterprise and the economy and the rest of it you're not Ask to love it all. You're not going to love it all. You shouldn't expect to love it all. And you should also expect that you'll get things that other people don't love. And and their out- outrage is, is shouldn't really have an effect on you. Um, but because the super powerful have these levers over social media and tech, they're exercising it to make sure they hang on to that control. I think at this point, People, conservative people, even liberal people in some stripes, 
are getting a lot better at getting around those guardrails, and I think it's 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 good. On the other hand, there is a lot of garbage online too. Learn to detect it and uh, and resist it. So I thought that was good. I th- I hope you found it interesting too. Uh, speaking of left, right, and center, boy, howdy, do people on the left despise people who disagree? Rigid little cranks. I probably shouldn't have said that. That that wasn't helping bring people together at all. A poll so revealing. I, I was surprised, and I'm not surprised by much these days. Uh, we'll have that for you next. Armstrong and Getty. Let's be honest. Bob Dole is always honest, sometimes to a fault. (laughs) He once endured the wrath of his fellow Republicans when there was a legitimate fight going on to defund Amtrak. Now, I've traveled over a million, two hundred thousand miles on Amtrak because I commuted every single day. It came time for literally the deciding vote, the deciding vote on whether we're going to defund Amtrak. And he cast the vote against his party deciding to keep funding Amtrak. And obviously you might guess he was asked, why? Why would you do that? He said it's the best way to get Joe Biden the hell out of here at night so he's not home no more. <laughs> Excuse my language. But... True story. The uh, funeral for the great Bob Dole going on in the Capitol as we speak. Uh, that's nice. That's nice. You know what? I got plenty of issues with old man Biden, but he was buddies with Bob Dole from back in the day when folks would reach across the aisle much more readily. And, um, you know, as we've discussed many times, often you could live next to somebody for 25 years and have no idea what their politics were. It wasn't worn on uh, the sleeve like it is so much these days. Of course, you know, there, there are also some really urgent things going on. And you absolutely ought to stand up for what you believe. Uh, Axios did a poll recently. This is college students. Um, and I suspected this was true, but I, gosh, I never suspected the extent to which it was true. Um, the, the left kids have hearts full of hate. They, they don't, I mean, the people they disagree with, they despise. 850 college students nationwide polled recently, very recently. Would you go out or, or these are things you would not do with someone who voted for uh, the opposite party uh, candidate. I would not go out on a date with a Democrat, said less than a third of Republicans. I would not go out on a date with a Republican, said 71% of the Democrats. Um, speaking as a heterosexual male, uh, is she cute and do we get along? I mean, like, and and forget politics. We'll talk about something else. Um, boy, that's something. I would not shop at or support a business of someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate. 7% of Republicans say that. Less than 1 in 10. And, you know, I'd urge you get over it. Different people believe different things. Yeah, maybe they're taken in bad media. Maybe they're just soft-hearted. They they believe uh, progressive schemes are going to work. I, I don't hate anybody. Um, and I, I don't have the slightest idea. I have a feeling, you know, the music shops I get to uh, go to, I have a feeling they're liberals. I don't know. Um, so 7% of Republicans, 41% of Democrats. 41 
How about just be friends with somebody? One out of 20 Republicans, Republican kids. And, you know, there are a couple of caveats to this that just popped into my mind, but I'll finish this stat first. Just 5% of Republican uh, college students said, no, I wouldn't be a friends with a, a Democrat. It was almost 40% of Democrats. 37 to 5 outweighed. And I would not work for someone who voted for the opposite presidential candidate. Only 7% are Republicans. I think Republicans tend to be a little more practical about economic matter. 7%, 30% of Democrats. 30% said they wouldn't work for somebody who voted for the opposite presidential candidate. Uh, a couple of things. Trump, such a polarizing figure. I think he upped those numbers. Second thing is... Liberal college students outnumber conservatives by quite a bit. And so it would be easier to uh, to not be friends with conservatives, for instance. Secondly, so many conservative and, uh, and moderate college students are cowed into silence. And we hear from them all the time. They drop us emails. Of, yeah, we have college kids listening to the show. Uh, weird college kids. Why don't you smoke pot and listen to music? Like a child? Kid. You child. Anyway, no, we, we appreciate hearing from y'all. Um, they're cowed into silence. And so I think a, a lot of Democrat kids, uh, they, they think, well, that, that, that cute guy or that girl or that uh, fellow who I like, uh, you know, playing ball with or whatever, um, they've never said anything about being conservative. I assume they're liberal. So, uh, yeah, uh, unbelievable. There's more of this, by the way. Um, but it's 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 astounding the extent to which college kids just hate anybody who disagrees with them. Is that what we're supposed to be teaching them in college? He says, knowing and you know too that the answer is the opposite. Man, these are crazy times. If you miss a chunk of the show, you can always get it via podcast. Armstrongandgetty.com. dot com. Armstrong and Getty.